Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 40, Four Brits and a Frenchman. More great unpublished history. Congratulations to listener Helen Westbrook for winning a prestigious story competition with her story and the same one that you've heard on the Fighting Through Podcast. Find out how Fred Reynard, hero of World War I Battle of Gallipoli, escapes death two years before his World War I adventures even began, in a jaw-dropping twist of fate. Hear about the extraordinary turns of events that brought four Brits to the shores of Dunkirk at the same time as a Frenchman. And listen to Bill Cheel's description of the terrifying havoc as his battalion escaped to the Dunkirk beaches. We looked a very sorry sight, covered in dirt and grime, with hunger gnawing at our bellies. Hello again, I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. My dad fought at Dunkirk, North Africa, Sicily, D-Day and Germany. The aim of the Fighting Through podcast is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and memories of veterans to connect to Dad's war in some way, and much more. All great unpublished history. I do try to make every episode of this podcast stand alone, so you don't need to have heard every episode to be able to follow the rest. And on this occasion, the same applies. But I do think if you have listened to some of the earlier Dunkirk episodes, then you will gain more enjoyment from this episode, because you'll be a little bit more familiar with the background, and that'll somehow help you to enjoy this episode just that little bit more. So I'd recommend you take a shuftiest episode one for starters, which also happens to be the most popular one. It's a building block for the show because it's about my dad's awful experiences on the beaches at Dunkirk and how he's eventually rescued. But for now I'll carry on with episode 40, Four Brits and a Frenchman. To begin, I need to share some rather sad news with you. I'm very sorry to say that my mum Anne passed away on 28th of December 2018 at the age of 96. Her last days were comfortable but she struggled with pneumonia and thankfully she passed away peacefully in her sleep. My sister and I both saw her at length every day in the lead up so we still had some quality times despite her illness. I've received too many tributes to mention but here are just a few of the sentiments from people who knew her. Such a wonderful lady. A very special friend. Such a gentle personality. Always polite. Great sense of humour. And of course, if you're a regular listener, you'll recall that my mum featured in a few episodes of the Fighting Through podcast, such as episode 32, Women at War, when she recalled what it was like being a young civilian in World War II. So I'm pleased she was able to share some of her wartime memories with us in that way as a permanent reminder of that challenging period in world history. And what fun it was for her to play her part in producing the show. 
I received a lot of positive feedback from listeners about her episodes. This week's PS at the end of the show is predictably a short tribute to Mum, with some of her best, most poignant memories, so fittingly of Dunkirk 1940. So thank you Mum, love you so much. Moving on, I've got several new Dunkirk stories to share with you today and the way they overlap is uncanny. They involve a death, an injury and an escape from Dunkirk in 1940. And the participants are four Brits and a Frenchman, hence the title of this episode. And I can barely wait to share the Frenchman's story with you. I've got a hat full of other short stories too. Now I know from my recent survey that around 40% of you listen to the show whilst at work and a similar number whilst driving. So if you're driving whilst you listen, hold on tight to your steering wheel. And if you listen at work, you take care too, especially if you're operating machinery or the bosses standing right behind you. Enjoy. I've got a one-off story to start off with. This is the story of Harry Trowbridge from World War One. My first Dunkirk Little Ship episode, number 11, came from Mr Michael Wills and featured Fred Reynard, the engineer on board the B. And since then we've heard from Helen Westbrook, who was Fred's granddaughter, and she sent me a fuller version of Fred's account of Dunkirk, so we have two accounts of the adventures of a little ship, the B. Helen also sent me Fred's riveting World War I Gallipoli memoir. Now here's another story from Michael Wills about his grandfather, and it's about someone else who has a connection with Gallipoli, and who also sailed on the bee. Michael says, At the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, my grandfather Albert Sanger had a girlfriend, Amy Trowbridge. She had a brother, Harry. Albus and Harry Trowbridge decided to join the queue of volunteers at Newport Isle of Wight Drill Hall. Albert, 21, was a miller and Harry, 17, was a butcher's errand boy. Both were enlisted to the Isle of Wight Rifles, an infantry regiment which was part of the Hampshire Regiment. Hampshire is located on the south coast of England, close to Southampton and a stone's throw from the Isle of Wight. So, on 30th of July 1915, after training, and along with seven or eight thousand other men, they embarked on the liner Aquitania in Liverpool docks. The troop ship had two escorting destroyers to protect against German submarines, but the weather was so bad the escorts had to return to port. The Aquitania took a long detour out into the Atlantic to avoid the U-boats. On the 8th of August, the rifles were landed in the Dardanelles, Turkey. Most of the men from the Isle of Wight were not to see England again for over two years. A large proportion, including Harry Trowbridge, were never to return. After a terrible mauling during the fight at Suvla Bay, most of the battalion was shipped to Alexandria in Egypt. Harry's body was never identified but he's remembered on the memorial at Helios, not far from the site of the battle. Albus, wounded in the fighting, was repatriated to England, 
There he married Amy before being shipped to Alexandria to rejoin his battalion in the autumn 1916. The Isle of Wight rifles were encamped by the pyramids of Giza and then moved on to a deployment at the Bitter Lakes by the Suez Canal. By then the remaining raw recruits of 1914 were hardened soldiers, but nevertheless the territory through which they were fighting took its toll. The regimental diary tells of snakes, scorpions, sandstorms and extreme heat. In January 1917 they marched first to Mazar and then in February they began chasing the retreating Turkish army across the Sinai Desert. The 145 mile march across the desert to El Arish took 12 days. On the 17th of April 1917, the offensive against the Turkish line at Gaza began. On the morning of the 19th, the rifles led the attack against the Sihan Redoubt. The redoubt was captured, but at the roll call at the end of the day, of the 800 men who went into action, only two officers and 90 men were recorded back and among those that didn't respond to the roll call was Albert. After the capture of Jerusalem, one of Albert's mates returned to the scene of the Battle of Sihan Redoubt. He found Albert's army paybook and tatters of uniform still on the barbed wire of the Turkish line. The paybook, which soldiers usually kept in their left-hand breast pocket, had a bayonet hole through it, and it was soaked in blood. Meaning well, Albert's mate sent a letter to my grandmother, Amy, telling her of the circumstances of Albert's death and enclosing the paybook. She kept it until her death in 1941. What Albert was never to know was that he had a daughter, Molly, who was born in March 1917. My mother. Mike's grandfather, Corporal Albert Sanger's grave and many others of the men of the 1st Battalion, Isle of Wight Rifles, are in the War Cemetery in Gaza, Palestine. A huge thanks to Michael for sharing Albert and Harry's story. I think it's right up there amongst the most poignant tales we've heard in this show. But this isn't really the end of the story, because Harry Trowbridge, quite remarkably, had a brother... Bill Trowbridge, who, guess what, only became skipper of little ship the B at Dunkirk, <laughs> standing shoulder to shoulder with a certain Fred Reynard, who was the ship's engineer. So if you cast your mind back to the brave effort that Fred Reynard and Bill Trowbridge put in at Dunkirk, rescuing soldiers from the beaches... No wonder they were so determined with the fighting history they had behind them. One whose brother was killed fighting bravely at Gallipoli, the other who was himself nearly killed doing the same thing. So by a country mile I feel very justified in saying, how good is that? As a little episode to this passage, I've got a quote from Michael Wills, who, uh, as a lad, actually knew hero Fred Reynard, and, of course, Brill Trowbridge was Mike's great-uncle. 
Michael said. I remember Fred so well in his blue overalls. He passed my house on his way to and from the quay, and he always acknowledged us scruffy lads playing in the street. The engine room was very much his territory, and one only went there by invitation. Nevertheless, he occasionally proudly showed us round. He was aware that being an engineer gave him some status. He had his tea in the engine room, or with my uncle in the wheelhouse. Not with the crew in the four-peak cabin. Best wishes, Mike. Mike, thanks for that little memory. We can now imagine how Fred would have taken great exception to the enemy bombing and strafing his beloved little ship, B. It gets better. Helen Westbrook has won a competition. Helen's from Newport on the Isle of Wight near Southampton in England. She's the granddaughter of Fred Reynard, whom I've just mentioned and she's previously sent us Fred's memoirs of Gallipoli and Dunkirk. And I've got to congratulate Helen because she's won a Sunday Times Great War Story competition for an extract from Fred's World War I Gallipoli memoir. Helen's magnificent prize was a six-foot-tall metal-framed silhouette of a rifle-bearing British Tommy provided by the There But Not There commemorative campaign. There's a photo of Helen and Tommy in the show notes along with the link to the There But Not There campaign where you can purchase a Tommy figure for your own home to remember the fallen and help raise funds for the veterans' charities today. Superb. If anyone's listened to the Gallipilli episode, they'll only be too aware of the number of times Fred narrowly escaped death in the brutal fighting that took place. Well, Helen's winning entry read as follows. My grandfather Fred Reynard was born in 1895. He served in the army and fought in several campaigns, including Gallipoli. He kept a diary from which the quotes below show some of the effects the war had on his life. He lost his younger brother Charles and his great friend Dink Watson, both killed in action. I saw Dink fall wounded, trying to reach a man in no man's land. No time to think, I found myself running towards my pal. He was still alive and said, Sergeant Freddy, where my strength came from, I shall never know. I threw him over my shoulder and started back, a hail of bullets following me. Something hit my side and it pained a little, then a bang on the chest as I tumbled with Dink into our shelter. Dink was dead. We could do nothing for him. A bullet had broken my bayonet off short and had driven the steel of the scabbard into my hip, tearing the flesh. Another hit the prayer book I carried in my breast pocket. The steel mirror inside had deflected it and so saved my life. The mirror was one that Dink had given me. I was sick of heart, mind and body. I'd seen men whom I'd grown to love and respect. Men I'd eaten, joked and fought and knelt in prayer with, just wiped from the face of this earth, without a chance to hit back or bid their families goodbye. I buried my head in the dust of the trench and cried. Some of the things I saw, perhaps it's better not written, for it would bring no credit to the human race. 
Nevertheless, my experience is one that will always live with me. Fred survived the First World War and in May 1940 was a crew member aboard the civilian vessel B, assisting in the evacuation of Dunkirk. He died at home in 1987, at the great age of 92. As I said goodnight to him the night he passed away, he grabbed my hand and said, Cheerio, I can hear the guns again. So listener, that's the end of Helen's competition winning entry, and I know how deserving it was having read the full version of Fred's memoirs multiple times. And judging by the feedback I've had from listeners, Fred's Gallipoli memoir ranks very highly on the list of favourites. So if you haven't heard it yet, get yourself over to episode 16, Gallipoli, where you'll hear the full and truly impressive memoir written by someone who was party to one of the most brutal battles of World War I. As a postscript to this story about Helen, she later added, I had the great honour to be asked by the Lord Lieutenant of the Isle of Man to read my competition entry in Newport Minster. As you can imagine, this was both a scary and a very proud moment. Tommy was in attendance too. But it was only when the Sunday Times contacted Helen about the competition prize that they found out her grandfather nearly didn't get to fight in the Great War at all. It turns out, even before World War I, that Fred Reynard had already diced with death. In 1912... He'd left his home on the Isle of Wight to start a new job. A stoker on a passenger ship. But evidently heavy fog in the waters of the Solent held up the journey from his island home to Southampton and the ship left without him. But interestingly, and thankfully, that ship was called the Titanic. So Fred Reynard, hero of Gallipoli in the First World War and engineer on board the valiant ship B at Dunkirk in World War II only did those things because he escaped that fateful voyage of the Titanic. So next time you complain about the weather on a foggy day just think that bad weather does sometimes have its advantages. Go on then. We'll just have to have another award. How good is that? So that's two in one episode. Wow. And there's more Dunkirk stuff. But not before I say thank you so much, so very much to Helen for that fantastic competition win and for being so good in giving me all the information she's provided over several months, really, to get some of these stories out in the public domain. Thank you, Helen. And I hope you enjoy Tommy. And of course, before I forget, there's a great photograph of Tommy in the show notes if anybody wants to see it. Harry Downer. There's a photo of the Dunkirk ship The Bee with its crew in the show notes, all looking tough and determined. We've heard the backstories of Fred Reynard, engineer, and now Bill Trowbridge, skipper. And there are three other characters in that photo. And because of the power of the internet, someone has just written to tell me about two of them. And there's a shiver just run up my spine as I'm reading this. 
I've been emailed by Kevin Downer saying he stumbled across my show notes via a Facebook comment. Kevin says, My name is Kevin Downer. The picture of the B crew shows Fred Reynard engineer, Captain Bill Trowbridge, and Harry Downer first mate, and his young son, Ernest Muddy Downer. Harry Downer was my grandfather, and Ernest was my father. I believe the photo is circa 1935, before the outbreak of World War II, which would be when my dad was around 10 years old. Listener, I've posted the picture Kevin's referring to in the show notes. Here are some short stories which will give you an insight into the characters of both my father and my grandfather. My dad Ernest served in the Royal Navy during World War II. In 1940 he went to sign on for the war effort and when he went to the desk there was a naval officer and a civilian taking information and filling forms out. When the naval officer asked for Ernest's age and date of birth, he gave a false date of birth. The civilian was a local councillor and a very close family friend. He looked up, and knowing my father's real age was only 15, he said to Ernest, Does your dad know you're here? Ernest retorted, It was my dad who sent me. He duly signed up that day at the tender age of 15. But he didn't go to war for another couple of years after training at Sea Cadet Corps. So that's a little background in tribute to the young lad in the B photo. He didn't serve on the B, but nevertheless a little bit of the grit that runs through the family showing up there. Kevin goes on to talk about his grandfather, Harry Downer, the chap who did serve on the B at Dunkirk. Kevin says he was a short man of no more than 5 foot 5. That's about 1.65 metres or uh, 3.5 kilograms. And I always likened him to comedian Norman Wisdom in looks and build and also being very, very funny and always happy. However, he was ruled with a rod of iron by my grandmother and he would do everything she told him to do. He loved his gardening and won many awards for his vegetables, especially his prize onions, which he'd give away freely at the Harvest Festival. Harry was affectionately called Paps by all his grandchildren, but among the older family members he was referred to as Scrapper. This was because the family didn't want the authorities, or anyone else for that matter, knowing who they were referring to when talking among themselves about Harry. This label was due to him going into town on a Friday night for a drink and looking for anyone to have a fight with, which would usually involve a soldier from the local barracks. As locals knew him only too well and how hard he was, they would even avoid him by crossing the road if he was coming in the opposite direction on a Friday night. It was only a few years ago that I learned that Harry had served in the army and was shot and seriously wounded in Northern Ireland in 1923. I don't think he was in World War I. Long after World War II and around 1966, my grandfather Harry had a very serious accident aboard the B, which resulted in him totally losing all four fingers of his right hand. 
I vividly remember the nurse coming to dress his hand and my grandfather insisting I stayed in the lounge to see his mangled hand and watch the nurse dress his wounds, stating, He's a downer, so he'll need to harden up sometime. I was five or six at the time. But I have fond memories of him, and as we only lived a couple of doors away, I was always in and out of his home. After my grandmother died, I'd take him out to a country pub for a pint which he thoroughly enjoyed. Sadly, this was only enjoyed a few times as Harry died just six months after his beloved wife in 1980 of a heart attack. He was 80. At no point did he ever speak of his time in the army or of his Dunkirk experience, choosing instead to recall family stories and how to properly conduct one's life in a polite and proper manner. I do remember him adorning all his medals and proudly attending the Sunday Remembrance Services each year held in the main square in Newport. He was buried at the cemetery wearing all his medals, which was his wish. I hope this gives you an insight into the man who was my granddad, Harry Downer. Although a short man in stature, he was a big man when it came to heart and courage. Mark, thank you so much for filling us in on that background to your grandfather. Just brilliant. So we've now got the stories to three of those heroes who manned that little ship at Dunkirk. All tough, strong characters. Fred Reynard, survivor of Gallipoli. Bill Trowbridge, whose brother Harry was killed at Gallipoli. And now we've just heard the background to Harry Downer, first mate aboard the Valiant B. You know, I really feel quite privileged uh, knowing all these guys' stories and how they've come together like this. It's not the stuff you'll find in the history books. There's just one crew member missing from that photo that we know about, and uh, I wonder if he actually took the photograph. But it's uh, Mark Hocking, aged 18. He was the fourth hand. Now, does anyone listening know his story? Please get in touch. I have to say that I think the relatives of all these men and other little ships that were crewed by civilians at Dunkirk should be mightily proud of them. And I think we're so lucky that someone made an effort and took some photographs of them to pass down to future generations. Anyone looking for new history podcasts to listen to uh, might like to check out the one I've just found and enjoyed. It's called Unknown History, and it's now entering its third season, uh, which is all about D-Day, often referred to as the longest day in military history. Um, They've got tales of survival from fighters and bystanders on all sides of the conflict, and the first episode is a true adventure story about a secret landing on the D-Day beaches before D-Day. Unknown History is written and hosted by best-selling historian Giles Milton, whose books have sold almost two million copies. It's expertly researched and rivetingly told, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Look out especially for the uh, D-Day season. I'll put a link in the show notes. That's Unknown History. D-Day veteran Fred Bates was one of the first soldiers on the Gold Beach in 1944. Nathan Portlock Allen just wrote to me and said, I'm a filmmaker and I've just started a non-profit personal project recording some of the last World War II veterans. 
I've just finished the edit on the first one with Fred. I think Nathan has done such an exquisite job with this and I'll defy anyone not to have a tear in their eye by the end of it. Here's just a short clip to illustrate what you'll get. It was murder. And we wasn't, we wasn't accustomed to what was happening. And in that first hour, there were two casualties every minute. I get so upset thinking about that morning. We never ever knew what we got into faith. We were never told. But you only done as it was ordered. And I landed on Normandy, in Normandy, two months into my 19th birthday. And I get so upset thinking about what happened from that day on. And why am I still here? Wasn't that just lovely? It's all very interesting for me because Dad also landed on Gold Beach. Fred was part of the 231st Infantry Brigade, which in turn was part of 50 Division. As I understand it, 231 Brigade was an additional brigade brought in quite late on in proceedings to bolster up the attack on Gold Beach. So that could be why Fred claimed he'd had no training. Poor lad. No experience no training and being shoved off a landing craft on Gold Beach. Wow. So, <laughs> homework for this week. Go to my show notes, take a look at the YouTube link and give it a like and a comment if you feel so moved. Nathan has done several interviews with veterans so you might consider subscribing to his YouTube channel so you catch any future releases. I for one cannot wait to see the rest. If there's any more news I'll give you an update. And while we're on the news, uh, thanks to Davy McLean who responded to my plea in a previous episode for the whereabouts of the now defunct Northwest Sound Archive. Davy made some suggestions which I followed through and it seems the archive was shared between the Lancashire and Manchester archives. Sadly they're not online but from the list there they've kindly sent me there are clearly some memoirs that'll be worth digging out for future shows. Thank you so much Davy. You're listening to the Fighting Through Podcast episode 40. Four Brits and a Frenchman. Great unpublished history. Feedback time. I want to share some of the recent feedback I've had about the show and to give a few shout-outs. Thank you so much to you if you've been in touch with the show, whether it be likes or comments on Twitter or Facebook, uh, emails or other messages. In particular, thank you if you subscribed to the show. It's totally free to subscribe in your listening app and when you do so, your app will automatically download the show and give you a notification that it's been released. So today I'm making a plea for you to subscribe as it will help me in the podcast rantings. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go on, I'll leave that in. I'll give you a giggle. It will help me in the podcast rank. It will help me in the podcast rankings which in turn will help others to discover your favourite World War II history podcast. And who knows what precious memoirs that might help uncover at some point in the future. 
I now hereby declare Mr Jonathan Martin of Britain to be Listener of the Month for his kind sponsorship on Patreon. If you'd like to send me the price of a cup of tea or coffee or more to help cover the cost of this show, look for the donate links on the Fighting Through Podcast homepage. That's fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk for everything. And you can now very easily make contributions by PayPal, either one-off for an episode you've particularly enjoyed, or a monthly donation if you prefer. Thanks again to Jonathan. Here's a few shout-outs for various people who've been in touch. Poppy on YouTube. What a story. I'm a great fan of the podcast from episode one and all that followed. I'm still working on the maps and routes, and when these personal accounts are told and listened to, it becomes a harrowing experience, unimaginable. Usually it's told as a grand scheme and largest operation, which of course it was, and usually from an American perspective. But these young fellows are from all over the world, treading in sand, working their way up to a pillbox while under fire, and with their friend wounded and dying around them, it's a true account of that horrible war. I hope all rest in peace. And with the greatest respect to all the soldiers, I say thank you, sirs, for the greatest fight against the Nazi war machine. And thank you, Paul, for telling this story. Let it live on forever, and may we never, never forget. Jules René from Facebook I just discovered your podcast last week. I haul horses and drive at least 12 hours a day, two to four times a week. My grandpa, Robert Revis, was a test pilot. I was so young when I heard his stories a million times, and now I can only recall a few. I love World War II history and World War II airplanes. I've made it to episode 35 so far, and I only started listening last week. I've been in touch with Jules, and she sent me a stack of material on her granddad, so I'm hoping to use it in a future show, including one or two quite startling revelations about him. So keep your ears peeled. Dave Hamley from England has just hinted at a few possible stories from his family. I work long hours on the road, and without you knowing it, you've become a good friend keeping me company in the cab. I love the history you're unveiling and the way you deliver it. The interest sparked by the podcast has made me realise firstly how involved the West Country, where I live, was in the war. Many of the camps based and airfields you've mentioned I still visit today on a professional basis. You've also reminded me of the involvement of certain family members and their heroic stories. My most impressive tale is one from my sister-in-law's uncle, who was a Japanese prisoner of war, and how he survived and gained a Japanese general's samurai sword, and the unlikely love story which unfolded after his release. So hopefully, David, you're going to give us a bit more detail on that fascinating tidbit of history. We'll all be watching this space. That mention of the samurai sword reminds me of a Nazi flag my dad brought back from Germany. Enormous thing. It was blood red, uh, it had a great big swastika in the middle and an eagle, and uh, it was absolutely immaculate. And <laughs> I used to use it as a bedspread in the 70s. Um, but then dad needed the money and we sold it. And in the 70s that was around £70, a lot of money in those days. 
One treasured item I've got in Dad's surviving souvenirs is a miniature Nazi dagger with a slim stainless steel blade. It's got an ivory handle and a silk cord. It's in a sheath and that's got a small swastika at the hilt. I used to use it as a letter opener for a while till I realised it warranted a little bit more tender loving care. So now it sits in a special display cabinet along with a number of other treasured possessions such as a copy of the motivational speech Monty handed out to all troops before D-Day. I digress. Many thanks to the following for various comments on the show. Brian Gould uh, on Facebook, Gerard Painter from Brisbane, Australia, Cindy McQuaig Nessing from Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you, Cindy. And uh, in iTunes, Not By Chance from the UK, and uh, Alan McManus. I've posted everyone's comments uh, on the feedback page at the fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk website. Feedback of the Month. Andy Charlie Nanus has been in touch on Facebook from a town called Kuwirup in Victoria, Australia. Good day, mate, all the way from Australia. I've just started listening to your podcast while I'm working on the farm. Absolutely fantastic, mate. Great work you're doing and the Gallipoli Diary, crikey, mate. So well detailed. Fred Reynard was a great bloke, especially for his work at Dunkirk. The first-hand accounts from the veterans themselves is very special. Right, that'll do. Back to English English now. Um, <laughs> Andy continues. I'm right into my military history, and I do World War One, World War Two reenactment. I've been to France and Belgium in uniform for anniversaries, but we live and train and eat as soldiers when we do it. And for World War II, I'm part of a 25-pounder crew. Our gun still fires and saw action in Syria. We train a lot for that. We're like living history. Anyway, mate, keep up the great work and looking forward to hearing more and more. Cheers. Andy, thanks so much for that feedback. Just brilliant how you're into your reenactment hobby. And I wonder if you've had a, if you've had any of that famous bully beef that uh, several of our veterans have talked about. Anyway, Andy came back with some more information about his reenactment group, their uh, Australasian Living History Federation and National Military Reenactment Group. So that's uh, LHF and the NARM. NMRG. Um, Andy and his mates are going to be part of a major state airshow soon, so he's an official shout out for you guys. I've posted some photos of Andy in the show notes at a variety of events, and there's one great one taken with an old brownie box camera, and uh, anybody who's been looking out on Facebook will have seen that. And uh, anyway, it's obviously uh, comes out sort of imperfect and of course black and white so it's a real authentic looking photograph of the group as they might have looked so many years ago Andy you really should get that pic colorized by an expert cheers cobber bye for now right here we go four Brits and a Frenchman at Dunkirk Maurice Burrell I'm about to tell you the story of a Frenchman who was involved in the Dunkirk episode of World War II who had the most remarkable escape from the beaches. All the places about to be mentioned are pretty much in the vicinity of Dunkirk and I'll just remind you that Britain declared war on Germany on the 3rd of September 
1939, and Germany invaded Holland on the 10th of May 1940. Frenchman Benjamin Burel has just written to me, Dear Paul, I'm French and I live near Lille in the north of France where my whole family's from. My grandfather died in 1994 when I was 14 years old, so I knew him very well but I regret not listening to him more when I was younger. Now after many years I'm trying to trace his history in as much detail as I can and connections like yours are extraordinary for me. My grandfather, Maurice Burrell, was evacuated from Dunkirk aboard the Lady of Man after being wounded near Dunkirk. He was first treated at Sweet Coast Hospital and then boarded the Lady of Man on 31st of May. Thank you, Benjamin. I was fascinated by Benjamin's email because when I reread it and checked what he'd said, I realised that the date his grandfather was evacuated from Dunkirk on the Lady of Man was only the same day as my dad, 31st of May. And as there was only one sailing that day, it meant that Maurice Burrell was on the ship at the same time as Dad. They might have been standing next to each other, both eyeing up the same Carly float in case the ship was sunk both watching the same scenes unfold at the same time as ship's Captain Tom Woods and Company Commander Major Petch were. We've got podcast episodes on both their memoirs. So they saw the enemy bombs falling towards the ship, the soldiers being knocked down like dominoes on the beach, the burning oil tanks... They'd have seen the holes in the wooden flooring of the mole where an unexploded bomb had gone through, the soldiers with full kit daring to jump across in haste. You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? And and I'm almost reluctant to say it because I've said it twice already. But hey, it's Happy New Year 2019, so what the heck? How good is that? Do you know, I'm, I'm lost for words really. I sent Benjamin a quote from Dad's book, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. About 1.30pm, we got a berth at the pier, the East Mall, and began embarking French casualties from the French hospital. We took 1,500 casualties on board, of which 300 were stretcher cases, also 500 other French troops and 1,000 British. Benjamin confirmed, My grandfather was one of those wounded. We know his story quite well, because my grandmother's still alive. She's 97 years old. So she's talked to us about my granddad's experience, and has started to write a few lines about him. My husband left home to join his army comrades on the 3rd of September 1939, after a holiday in the Riverine area. He was away until the attack on Belgium, coming back from Belgium on 20th of May 1940. He came back to Fromel to my home so we could get ready to evacuate within three days. We went back to Merville to his parents' home, where his father told him to stay, for in any case, this was the end. He wouldn't accept this and went to join the soldiers who'd been encamped for a few days at the Nieppe woods, 
before leaving to defend the attack on Dunkirk. After going into battle, he was wounded in the foot at La Panne on the 28th of May 1940. With a broken foot, he was taken to the hospital at Sweetcourt, not far from Dunkirk. Now this is Benjamin's broader account of his grandfather's actions. Maurice Burrell was a volunteer, and at the beginning of the war he moved to the 39th Combat Tank Battalion, where he started fighting in the Numur region in Belgium. During the debacle of the French army, he retreated towards Dunkirk to lend a hand in the defence of the city. Then he was wounded in the foot after a strafing by German planes at La Panne, just east of Dunkirk. He was hospitalised at Sweet Coast in the military hospital. But the hospital was bombed, so with his foot in plaster, he managed to flee on a bicycle with no tyres, with the help of a comrade who also had a broken finger. They joined a Red Cross ambulance convoy who transferred the wounded to the ships for evacuation. I don't know exactly how he got on to the Lady of Man, but my grandma is certain that this was the ship that took him to England. He landed at Folkestone and probably took the train to Southampton. He then finished his convalescence in England, firstly Berkhamstead, then Southport, before joining General de Gaulle in London. He was then sent to Africa, where he fought with General Leclerc, Fezan Campaign, Tripolitania Campaign, and then the Tunisia Campaign. He joined the British 2nd Armoured Division after that in England, and landed in Normandy in August 1944. He then did all the campaign in France, Battle of Normandy, Liberation of Paris, Liberation of Strasbourg, and capture of Berkesgarden until the end of the war. Unfortunately, my grandfather did not leave any writing, but my grandmother remembers very well that he told her about the Lady of Man, a name that is not forgotten. My grandfather left the map which he drew in 1945 after he got back from the war. On this map, we can see that he left Dunkirk on the May the 31st, 1940. So there we have it. My dad, 6th Battalion the Green Howards. His company commander, Major Petch OBE. Captain Tom Woods OBE of the Lady of Man ferry ship. And Maurice Burrell together. Three Brits and a Frenchman, all for a moment at least, safely aboard the Lady of Man bound for England. And as my dad put it, the other side of that water was England. Oh, that lovely sea with England just on the other side. How simple. And for anyone who hasn't had a chance to listen to the Captain Tom Woods Dunkirk episode, I'll just remind you that his daughter, his granddaughter Sarah, once told us that Tom had three sons of his own in their 20s at the time. And the reason he insisted on going back for several repeat rescues was because he said every one of the men in the water was somebody's son. This is what Dad said in his memoir about leaving Dunkirk after all the drama of the previous few weeks. As the ship was filling up, a padre came and stood on a ladder, calling for silence, and prayed for our deliverance to England. At last, packed like sardines, the ship started to tremble, 
and so very slowly we pulled away from the mole. It was 1800 hours, 31st of May 1940. I've posted Morris's map in the show notes and it's quite detailed. It shows the routes of the ships Morris sailed on to Africa and back, possibly on the same ship as Dad, such as troop ship HMT or Tranto, though not at the same time on these occasions. Maurice sailed out in March 41 and returned 1st of June 44 just in time for the Normandy campaign and he's marked so many places on the map of Britain that my dad also travelled through or past Folkestone, Southampton, London, Dover, Glasgow what an adventure it must have been for him at that time and he even fought in Tunisia as dad did though I believe it was different battles Sarah Parry was very interested in Benjamin's family history because it was her great-grandfather who'd captained the ship that brought Benjamin's grandfather back She said, wow, thank you so much for sending me this, Paul. It brought a little tear to my eye. It's wonderful to think that through your podcast, so many connections are being made and people are able to piece together so many individual stories to gain a greater insight into their own ancestors' experiences at Dunkirk. Sarah wrote the following to Benjamin. Dear Benjamin, thank you so much for the wonderful photographs of your grandfather. What an eventful time he had and how lucky he was to come through in one piece. It's quite something to think that even after the traumatic events of Dunkirk, your grandfather went on to experience and achieve so much more in Europe and Africa. I find these stories fascinating. How amazing that we've managed to make contact and put together some of the pieces of this great puzzle. We're complete strangers but years ago the paths of our ancestors crossed for a brief moment and influenced future events. Sarah. I'm posting the photographs that Benjamin sent me in the show notes and in fact there are loads of photographs from every element of this show, this episode, so if you go to fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk you'll find the show notes as usual. One of Benjamin's photographs shows Morris in August 1940 at the Southport Hospital where he convalesced together with two Australian nurses who looked after him, one of whom was called Francis Croak or Walsh. As Benjamin said, it would be fabulous to identify other people in the photo. So listener, if you've got connections with Southport and know anyone who has uh, an Australian-connected family who are nurses in the hospital back in 1940, please do get in touch. Are you a local Southport historian who might have access to some of the records? How good would it be for someone connected with those nurses to come forward and share some memories of that dramatic period? Thank you in anticipation. There's a second photo taken in London in front of the Carlton Gardens. That was the headquarters of General de Gaulle in 1941. And apparently Morris was part of de Gaulle's guard. And there's actually a statue of General de Gaulle in the Carlton Gardens opposite the building that he set up as the Free French Forces headquarters during World War II. And there's another photograph from Libya in 1943. And one more from 1982, when Morris received the French Légion d'honneur medal. 
Listener, if you can free your hands or your mind from whatever you're doing right now, perhaps you'll join me in a hearty round of applause for Morris's valiant services, and especially in support of that Légion d'honneur that he was awarded. Just excellent. You know, it's funny, but I sometimes feel we Brits think we won the war on our own, and we forget or we're just ignorant of the roles played by so many allies. But in fact, if you Google the details of which countries did play their part in the fighting, it's massive. Around 50 nations were involved, including America, Soviet Union, and of course, France. And how's this for another coincidence? Sarah Parry informed me that almost around the same time that Morris was in the Southport Hospital convalescing, her grandfather Robert was actually in a jeweller's shop on the main street. Sarah says it's strange that Morris convalesced in Southport. My grandfather Robert, Tom's son, bought my grandmother's engagement ring in Southport that summer. I still have the receipt and the diamonds are now in my own ring. Robert and his family, including my dad, moved to Southport from the Isle of Man to live after the war. I was born in a Southport hospital, a stone's throw away from the military hospital, 26 years later. And listener, when I've previously mentioned this to my mum, she said she knew exactly where this ring was bought because she knew the area and it was Neville Street, and shown on the receipt is that purchase is W. Wright Jewellers, 18 Neville Street, and I can confirm that the shop is still there, but it's now a newsagent called Mike's News. Right, <laughs> I'll take my train spotter's hat off now and uh, we'll get on with it. Benjamin, thank you so much for getting in touch with your grandfather's story. It's been a revelation and so good to make the connections with the other characters in this extraordinary tapestry of World War Two. Please give our very best wishes and love from around the world to your fantastic grandmother and thank her for the part she played in preserving this absolutely precious bit of history. And I'm putting uh, the grandmother's handwritten notes and in the show notes as well, if anybody wants to look at them. There's more. It's about a British soldier who died fighting at Dunkirk. Fred Gardner, the fourth Brit. Coming up next, but take a breather. You're listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 40. Four Brits and a Frenchman. Great unpublished history. Lieutenant General A. Brooke once said of his evacuation from Dunkirk, I'm not very partial to being bombed whilst on land, but I have no wish ever to be bombed again whilst at sea. I have the greatest admiration for all sailors who so frequently were subjected to this form of torture during the war. Now that quote was brought to our attention by Andrew Newson on his Twitter page at Dunkirk 1940. I'm uh, putting a link in the show notes to that. Andrew is very active in social media on the subject of Dunkirk. Uh, so if you're particularly interested, you can also check out Andrew's France and Flanders campaign Facebook page. He has a great photo gallery of Dunkirk pictures. Possibly the best you'll find, really, because there's always comments and observations from page followers, which increases interest in the photos. Again, I'm putting a link in the show notes. 
and thanks again to Andrew for all your hard efforts. Now I know 40% of you are now jumping up and down in your car seats wondering who the fourth man is. Um, Who's the mysterious Brit at Dunkirk that we've not heard about yet? You're now going to hear of the brave role played by one soldier killed in action whilst performing a rearguard action at Dunkirk. If you go to YouTube and search on the East Mall, or if you go to the videos page at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk, you'll find me presenting my own videos of the Mall and the beach at Bray Dune near Dunkirk, and I hope it helps you to picture the scenes back in 1940 when you listen to this show. Dot McQuillan did just this and emailed me a few months ago. Hi Paul, I came across your podcast on YouTube. I hadn't even heard of Bray Dune, but recently I found out that my uncle, Frederick Gardner, was killed on the roads at Le Moire, just outside Bray Dune, when a group of junkers bombed their company on 28th of May 1940. They were holding a bridgehead on the road just outside Bray Dune to keep the Germans off while the British Expeditionary Force escaped to the beach. He was part of a small company, C Company, of the 8th Battalion the King's Own Regiment, commanded by Captain J. H. Everett. Forty men were killed in the air raid and the wounded couldn't be recovered because of the fighting. They were buried in a mass grave at Bray Dune and then after the war they were exhumed and 17 of them were buried in Addenkirk Cemetery. My uncle was one of the 17. Dorothy McQuillan, UK I've been researching my family tree for some 10 years now and I know that Frederick Gardner was my mum's youngest brother and she mentioned to me that he died at Dunkirk protecting a Belgian woman and child, although I've not been able to find out any more on that front. Born in 1911, in a two-up, two-down, he was a handsome, easy-going man, in no rush to marry and with a good sense of humour, but always a bit of a risk-taker. Nothing like his two older brothers, whom I both knew, and who were very quiet, sober men. Listener, I've dug out a map of the area from Google and I've put it in the show notes and it illustrates how the junction and bridge at Les Moer is just a stone's throw from Bray Dune. So it's pretty obvious my dad and his comrades would have gone by that junction as they made their way down to the beaches. And Maurice Burrell, the Frenchman, is likely to have gone that way too. I believe quite a lot of that land is marshy and could even have been flooded in places, so soldiers would have tended to stick to the roads. Having said that, Dad did say in his memoirs that they avoided the roads when they could. Here's a passage from Dad's memoir, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg, which offers a very clear picture of the absolute havoc that reigned at this point. Dad had just spent several weeks fighting the Germans and his battalion had scored several wins in hard combat so they'd proved their mettle. Our officers had to guide us out of this nightmarish debacle and leave the stubborn defence of the perimeter to the more experienced and older soldiers who, had they been in possession of sufficient weapons, would not have let the enemy pass. With the weaponry they had, the rearguard at Dunkirk did a tremendous job of containing the enemy, 
whilst the bulk of the BEF escaped to fight another day. Morale was good after our brush with the enemy at Graveline, and we felt confident that we could put up a sound defence. Good North Country lads were not going to be disposed of so easily, even though the enemy had far superior firepower, but we did lose some good boys at this time. After all is said and done, only three weeks ago most of us had not even fired a rifle, and now here we were acting as last line of defence in our sector. After two days of beating off attempted infiltrations by enemy infantry and killing many of them, the order came for us to retire further towards the coast at Dunkirk, a distance of about ten miles. The regular army battalion of the Welsh Guards was taking over our sector, and we had to hand over all weapons except for our rifles. The guards, unlike the Territorial Reserve, were fully trained soldiers. They'd undergone intensive training and were all a year or two older than us Territorial Army men. They had their splendid traditions to uphold and would give any aggressive intent by the enemy short shrift until they became exhausted or ran short of ammunition. The evacuation beaches covered a length of coastline running from La Panne to Dunkirk. The sector we were heading for was in between at a place called Bredune, which was about central, and must have derived its name from the sand dunes which ran off the beach. Our path lay across open countryside and this kept us away from the roads, which were still crowded, with the hapless refugees who were being forced to the side by an endless convoy of all kinds of military vehicles, pushing their way forward in order to get as close as possible to the beaches. I thought our officers were brilliant in guiding us through this nightmarish countryside. We looked a very sorry sight, covered in dirt and grime, with hunger gnawing at our bellies. I now weighed only ten stones, having lost seven pounds from the time I left England only eight weeks ago. Difficult as it was, ploughing across farmland with the mud coming up above our boots and still being strafed by machine guns from the plains, we must have made better time than those using the roads because a few miles from the beaches a massive graveyard started. Many thousands of vehicles had been driven as far as they could get towards Dunkirk, then made useless and abandoned or set on fire. It really is impossible for me to describe the havoc which had been created. Both ways, as far as we could see, the vehicles had been set ablaze, as were petrol and ammunition dumps, spreading smoke and flames over a wide area. But it would deny the enemy the use of it. The cost must have been tremendous. It was some miles to Bredune. In the distance, a huge column of thick black smoke reached for the sky. The oil tanks at Dunkirk were ablaze. I will never forget the sad necessity of so much destruction or the sight of dead soldiers and civilians lying all over the place. Nobody had time to bury them and our medics were already doing more than could really be expected of them, taking care of the wounded. Then there were the cattle, the poor helpless animals running madly about, scared out of their wits, the dead ones lying on their backs, legs in the air, and bloated like balloons. And there were packs of scavenging dogs, almost wild, driven mad by the effects of the bombing. There was no panic, 
At least I did not see any sign of it. The army just had to make haste of the beaches, and we had to try and keep up with our own unit. If anybody became separated from his company, it would not have been a very pleasant experience. But as time passed, this is what happened to some of the lads. In the background, we could hear the cacophony of war, where the British army and the best of the French soldiers were giving their all in a desperate bid to hold the enemy back, so that as many of the army as possible could reach the evacuation beaches and get away before the inevitable happened. Many of the rear guards would be overrun by an invincible force, to be taken prisoner to face a most uncertain period of time at the mercy of the enemy, not knowing how long it would be before they saw their loved ones again. It was just as well that the folk at home could not possibly have any idea what their men were enduring, or they'd most certainly have thought that the war was already lost. So, the actions and sacrifice of Dot's uncle and his comrades in defending the territory against the advancing enemy could have directly helped Frenchman Burrell, my father and his major Petch, amongst thousands of others, to escape to safety. I think Dad described the scene really well and was clearly subjected to the same bombing and strafing that Fred Gardner had to endure whilst he and his mates bravely guarded that junction at the cost of their lives. And the very presence of Fred possibly diverted those enemy planes enough that they were short of ammo to go and bomb the waiting Lady of Man at the Dunkirk Mall. Who knows? I'm feeling quite emotional about this, I have to say, and the coincidences which keep coming up in my researches for this podcast continue to be breathtaking. They really do. I wrote back to Dot, to see what else she'd learnt about her uncle, and she sent me some papers she'd collected. She's been trying to piece together exactly what happened to her uncle, because part of his regiment got back to Dunkirk, leaving Fred still guarding the road junction some seven or eight miles away. This is what the uh, curator of the King's Own Regimental Museum had to say. There's little to go on to actually establish what the 8th Battalion or indeed any battalion of the King's Own, was doing in the brief campaign in France and Belgium in 1940. There was clearly a great deal of confusion in the fall back to the beaches, and during the evacuation I'd guess that war diaries and any other paperwork was generally lost, no doubt burned, as the orders were given to withdraw. The regimental history makes reference to Captain J. H. Everett holding a bridgehead at Moer which is near Bray Dune, and just to the west of Addenkirk, where the cemetery is. Everett was holding a bridgehead on 28th of May, and I assume they were holding a strong point which would allow our soldiers to access the Dunkirk perimeter and hopefully escape. A large flight of Junker aircraft attacked the position, and killed or wounded 40 soldiers of C Company of the 8th Battalion. A comment is made about the difficulty in dealing with the wounded as there was no transport available to move them anywhere. Seventeen soldiers were buried in a common grave and from this my conclusion is that those soldiers of the 8th Battalion who were buried in the Addenkirk Cemetery are these men. 
Now, Dot's been trying valiantly to work out the course of events on that day, but she isn't really any clearer. She's found out that Captain Everett was mentioned in dispatches for the work he did holding the bridgehead. But Dot hasn't managed to track down the war diaries for C Company and thinks they may have burnt them in case of capture. C Company did get separated from the rest of the battalion who made it to Dunkirk and again it's not clear how this came about but I guess they were under orders to remain at the bridge until the rest retreated. Another thing Dot found was an account of the Royal Engineers for May 1940. Their units were responsible for blowing the bridges to stop the advancing Germans. The headquarters company visited the bridge at Le Moer at 8am on the morning of the 28th, the day of the bombing. I've been reading this account and it looks like the order to blow up the Moer's bridge was rescinded. But clearly a bridge over water means it was necessary in order to travel around the area. So it's become clear to me that at this point in Dad's journey he would have been using the roads so probably did go over Fred's bridge. I noticed that the Royal Engineers in question were part of the 23rd Northumbrian Division, which at that point in the war was Dad's division, so maybe someone knew enough about what was going on to ensure those bridges were kept open at least for the time being to allow Allied troops to cross, namely the French and the British. Dot believes that one of the so-called Moet 17, a well-respected Reverend Captain Moss, turned up in a hospital in England later in 1940, so whether there's now another name missing to go with the 17 bodies isn't clear, but I'm putting a link to the known names in the show notes. If you happen to go to Addenkirk Cemetery, do pay your respects to the graves and spend a few moments imagining what these brave lads went through to help secure the lives of other soldiers. Now, uh, along those lines, Dot's actually been able to contact somebody related to one of the 40 soldiers who were killed that day, and uh, I'll just refer to my notes on this individual. This is a note written by uh, a Mr. Aidan Milner, um, from Winchester and it's regarding a Lance Corporal Charles Frederick Baldwin and he died on the 28th of May 1940. Eden says, Charles Baldwin was my great great uncle. From what I know of him he was a kind and funny man who my granddad remembers fondly. He was at Dunkirk fighting in the rear guard and I believe he was hit by either a shell or a bomb and killed. His child wallet was posted home to his mother. He was 33 and had no children. Well, uh, Dorothy had written to uh, Aidan and uh, he didn't realise that his great-grandfather had been buried at Addenkirk and he subsequently went to pay his respects and put some flowers on the grave and also put a, a poppy on Fred Gardiner's grave as well. So how's that? That's lovely. (laughs) <laughs> do you know i was i was trying so hard not to say how good is that for the fourth time in this um, episode but i've said it now so there you go that is good that is good right we'll move on in conclusion on this segment thank you c company 8th battalion king's own regiment captain j h everett and the 40 men who lost their lives at the bridge at moer 
And that is the end, at least for now, of Fred Gardiner's adventures. I'd just like to round off the episode by reflecting on what we've learned. We've heard about bee engineer Fred Reynard's various comrades and predecessors, Harry Downer, Harry Trowbridge, Albert Sanger and Bill Trowbridge, and how their backgrounds all overlapped to an extraordinary degree, one which led to such a tough, determined crew on that Dunkirk little ship, the Bee that performed so heroically in rescuing hundreds of soldiers from the sea. And then, at the same time, elsewhere, behind the sand dunes, other events took place which led to the death of Fred Gardiner and 40 members of the King's Own Regiment. And there's a good chance that the presence of him and his comrades helped to ward off the enemy approach to the beaches and the mole where of course Captain Tom Woods and the Lady of Man were waiting to rescue many thousands of British and French troops including the wounded Maurice Burrell and his comrade. Fred and the 8th King's Own assisted the escape of my dad and his comrades along with Major Petch and also of course two other pals of dads whose names I don't know but the photo of them is in the show notes and Dad's caption in the photograph in question as him and two pals looking like they're trying to smile at the camera but they aren't and Dad's caption was we'd been through a hard time and by heck they had this has all been quite a saga hasn't it I must say thank you very much to Dorothy McQuillan and Benjamin Burrell Sarah Parry, Michael Wills, Helen Westbrook everyone who's taken the trouble to send in their memories I hope you've enjoyed the show. Thank you for your support and thank you so much for making the time to listen to me. Do hear me again soon. Next episode. Episode 41 is going to be the final unheard interview with the late veteran Wilf Shaw. Oh boy. Wilf was in the Green Howards, the same battalion as my dad, and uh, he was party to many of the same battles and is absolutely full of great tales and entertainment, so uh, it's well worth listening to. And of course, this will be the last time we have the privilege to hear him, because sadly, Wilf passed away not so long ago. If you haven't heard Wilf's earlier interviews, you're in for a treat. So get binging now, and you'll be ready for the final instalment. And don't forget to subscribe free to the show so you get an automatic reminder and you help me in the podcast rantings at the same time. One final request from me, I'd be very grateful if you could spare two minutes to answer a few questions on my listener survey. Just go to my homepage at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk and you'll see a clear link to it. Many thanks if you're one of the many who've already answered it and in the not-too-distant future... I'll be sharing some of the interesting results and comments I've had. P.S. I'm going to close shortly with my usual outro music in Victory, ever fit, I think, for the occasion of remembering all those brave people mentioned in this episode. Thank you for your service. You'll never be forgotten. And not forgetting my mum and Chile either. Here's the promised tribute to her with some of her most poignant memories, so fittingly, of Dunkirk 1940. She gave us some great entertainment, and I'm so, so pleased I recorded her when I did. 
So if you want to catch up with what my mum said about her war years, what she cooked, what she did in the bomb factory, what she did for entertainment and holidays, and so many other facets of wartime existence for a civilian, check out my Women at War series on the Fighting Through podcast. So thank you, Mum. Love you so much. This is Paul saying bye-bye now. Here's the tribute to my mum. Did you expect war to be declared? Was it, were you surprised? Oh, it? no, we were expecting Everybody it. Everybody was expecting it. Yeah, because Churchill had been warning us for donkey's years to rearm. Yeah. And he, they never took a bit of notice of him. And he was right. Yeah. When it came, we were very ill-prepared. Yes, yeah. When war came. I remember the day all the little ships went across the channel to get the men off the beach and the, the small boats went to bigger boats to go farther out because it was too shallow for the bigger ships to get in so these smaller boats went out and took the men off the bigger boats uh, okay and i remember that day how jubilant everybody was that all these men had been taken off the beaches. Dad and Major Petch walked along the beach to the mall to try and get on the ship, and yeah. they did. What happened when the soldiers came back? What, when they got back to England? Yeah. Well, Dad was in Wales, near Swansea. He was looking in a shop window and uh, this old man and his two daughters came up to him and, the, and the Dad was all jeveled and dirty come just landing from Dunkirk and um, they said to him, are you from Dunkirk? and Bill said yes and they asked him to dinner at the house and he went and they became firm friends I don't know who I was with at that particular time. But um, I remember us all giving three cheers for the British soldiers. Mm -hmm.